Welcome to Crime and Time on the Rocks. So we actually had a listener submission this time. Seriously? Yeah. That's so, so cool. So I didn't tell you that part, but we are drinking a cocktail submitted to us from Sarah Peabody. Okay. So thank I know you, what the Sarah. cocktail is, but I didn't know that it yeah. was a listener submission. No, That's listener so awesome. submission. So which is pretty cool. It's our first one. Yeah. And I love what it is, too, because, you know, it, I'm slightly obsessed with it. It could not have been a more perfect listener submission. No, yeah, absolutely. So we're drinking the Fitzgerald. The Fitzgerald! So it's got 1.5 ounces of dry gin, 0. 0.75 ounces of lemon juice, 0. 0.75 ounces of simple syrup, and two dashes of Angostura bitters. Okay. Well, let's try it. It's pretty. It's kind of, like, lemony. Well, obviously it, lemony It's looking. kind of like, yeah, lemony... Okay, it tastes like the 1920s to me. It's really tart, though. I like tart. I do, too. I'm a tart person. Oh, I love it. I like it. I really do. It's very cold, too. It's good. Yes. So, you know, I'm slightly obsessed with, like, this whole time period and Fitzgerald and his fantabulous wife. I kind of knew that's where you were going to go. Yes. But I have to say that you're also going to love my story. Like, uh-huh. it falls right in line. Okay. I want to go first, though. Yeah, you go first. go first. So, I did my birthday party, my big, huge round, my big, huge round number birthday party. Um, on, the, and it was the Great Gatsby theme, and we had a ton of fun. Your 10th birthday party? My 10th birthday party. <laughs> we did a Great Gatsby theme for my 10th birthday, you know, times four. Um, yeah, it was really fun. So. Except for I made you drink absinthe. Oh. Absence figures into my story. Actually, very quickly, it figures into my story. Yes. My opinion, absinthe is disgusting, and I really do not understand how they drank it. I don't hate it, but I don't (laughs) love it. But given the fact that I don't remember the latter half of the evening and was still drunk when I woke up the next morning, it's, you know, pretty good booze for that factor. It was also a pretty good party. It was a pretty good party. So anyway, I listen to a podcast, and I know you listen to the podcast as well, um, Disgrace Land. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to, like, borrow okay. from him right and now. And I haven't heard this one. No, I'm not borrowing. I'm just oh, okay. borrowing his little oh, intro okay. I was like, thing. I didn't. No. no, but I'm, I love his writing. He is an amazing writer. Mm-hmm. Listen to his podcast if you haven't. No, I really it's like his podcast. really, really good. Anyway, so I'm just borrowing his little beginning line where he says, why what tells you the song and he's like why would i play that if i could afford it (laughs) (laughs) so if we could afford it i would be playing witchy woman by the eagles any idea why no okay not at all i found this out of my research it's so cool (laughs) don't say too many lines we're gonna have to pay for it so witchy woman was written by don henley and bernie london don henley was inspired after reading a biography on my person he actually says that after writing this song he really felt like he was part of the club he was a songwriter this kind of made him in it okay yeah so anyway the song witchy woman was inspired by the biography of Zelda Fitzgerald. Oh my goodness. That Don Henley wrote. It was written in the early 70s and it actually cemented her as an icon of um, the women's lib movement and women's independence. But so the verse, there's a, the second verse says on the last two lines, crazy laughter in another room and she drove herself to madness with a silver spoon. And that refers to the slotted spoon for the absinthe. Oh, Isn't how that interesting. Cool? Because I was trying to think, I'm like, because she was wealthy, but no, that makes sense. Yes, because she was the it girl of the 1920s. She was the thing. So, anyway, to tell about Zelda. Zelda Sayer was the youngest of six children, although I also found another website that said she was an only child. So, you know, but so she's the youngest of six children. Her father was Justice Anthony Dickerson Sayer. And her mother was Minnie Buckner. Um, They were kind of a thing in Montgomery. Alabama. Yes. Okay. I'm really going to try and not do this entire episode with a southern accent. Daughter was making fun of me and saying that you're totally going to talk like that, Mom. (laughs) But I'm trying not to because I don't want to offend anyone. But I pick up accents bad. Like, I can watch a TV show and then start talking like they do. It's, It's a bad habit. 
Can you do Australian? Because I like would love to be able to do the Australian accent. I can do it if I'm hearing it, but I don't think I could just start it. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, but I have to be hearing it. Yeah. Anyway, so they're kind of a thing in Montgomery. They had roots that go way back to the Confederacy. They had lots of family in the U.S. and the Alabama state government. Um, Daddy Sayer was an Alabama state Supreme Court justice. Oh. Yes. So their youngest daughter, Zelda, was born in July 20... Can't read if that's a fourth or a ninth. That's what you get when you're writing fast of 1900, the same year as my grandfather. And this I thought was interesting because she here she is in this prim and proper family and she gets her name from a character in an obscure 1847. Video game? No, yes, she gets her name from a video game in 1980. No, the video game got their name from her. So a gypsy heroine in this obscure 1847 novel. So Mama Sayer was maybe a little wild child too because she's reading this novel about a gypsy. Anyway, so Zelda grows up fast. She plays and parties hard. She drinks. She dances. She smokes. She hangs out with boys. I can hear, what's her name? From Greece. You know, Rizzo. Rizzo. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Oh, I don't Sandra dye D. my hair. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Zelda was not that. She did all those things. She drank. She smoked. She hung out with the boys. Sneaks in at night. All hours. You know, she's basically a bad girl. Luckily, her family's pedigree sort of protected her from this reputation that she was developing. That seems to happen a lot. Yes. Um, she was definitely not the typical Southern lady. So, in fact, her high school graduation yearbook quote, which I was really surprised to find out that in 1918, they had high school graduation yearbook quotes. They should probably start that again because I don't think they do that as much You don't now. think they do anymore? I, I they, did it. I think they do it, just not as much. Mine was, take heart. One day you will have that which you desire. We didn't do that. Oh, that's sad. No. Here I am. I'm not saying how many years later and I still remember mine. So Zelda's was... And it's actually come true. I do have what I desired. But so. A fabulous podcast. A fabulous podcast. That is what I was thinking about in 1990. A fabulous <laughs> podcast. In the 1900s when you graduated <laughs> from high school. That's sad. I got married in the 1900s too. Man, I'm old. Anyway. So her quote was, why should all life be work when we can borrow? Let's think only of today. And not worry about tomorrow. I like it. I do too. Little Scar, little Harry. <laughs> I'll think about that another day. So right after graduation, she's very popular with many boys. And she goes to a little dance. And at this dance at the country club, she does a solo dance. She was um, had been taking ballet lessons for years and years. So she does this solo dance. And there was a young army. I don't remember his rank. Um, he was 21 years old. He was an officer, I guess. He was stationed at Camp Sheridan, and he witnesses this dance, and he falls in love. But he's a poor army captain, so what can he offer a, a socialite from Montgomery? And they date, and Scott proposes, and Zelda says no. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> so France Scott was about to be... Um, I don't know if they used the word deployed back then, but deployed to the war in France. And right before he was set to leave, they signed the armistice in 1918 and he didn't have to go. So he gets sent back to New York. He is stationed at um, Fort Camp Mills on Long Island. And the Sayers are like, whew, we dodged that bullet. He was a Catholic. And so, you know, they're Episcopalian. That just didn't sit very well. So, Scott keeps, he keeps at it though. He starts writing Zelda and they exchange letters and he keeps, you know, they keep pestering each other. And he had told her when he was there, I'm going to be a famous novelist. And she said, oh, sure you are, honey. And, but he keeps, keeps pestering. And um, eventually he gets the letter that his novel, This Side of Paradise, is going to be published. Now, This Side of Paradise has been they've been writing back and forth and there's a lot of things in the novel that come from their letters zelda had shown him her diary and there's like swaths of verbatim from the diary in this side of paradise which i remember that from the zelda miniseries yeah it happened a lot apparently 
here and in the future. So he did tell her that he had rewritten his character, his main character, Rosalind Con Connage, after her to resemble her. There's a quote that says the heroine does from the letters, the heroine does resemble you in more ways than four. I want to know what the four were, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I think he's just being like, it's like an author's flourish. Like Could instead be. of saying more ways than one, he he's says like more ways than four. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so we get to where that it's going to be published. It gets accepted to be published in September of 1919. It hits the shelves on, um, so he says in March, in early March of 2020, 2020, <laughs> 1920, in early March of 1920, he sends her a letter and enclosed is his mother's ring. And young Zelda says yes. So the novel, This Side of Paradise, hits the shelves on March 26th. Zelda hits New York on March 30th. And they hit St. Pat's they Cathedral. They hit Manhattan. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. But on April 3rd, they hit St. Peter's Cathedral. And Mr. and Mrs. F. Scott Fitzgerald emerge. They have almost instant fame. They are the shit in New York City. Everybody wants to have them at their party. Everybody wants to it's be like them. It's like when the Muppets take Manhattan, except for it's the Fitzgeralds. Except for it's the Fitzgeralds. Like, they party like hair bands from the 80s. Could not even compete with them. They get kicked out of the Biltmore. They get kicked out of the Commodore. They're just crazy. They Zelda jumps into a fountain in Union Square, fully clothed. In fact, Dorothy Parker wrote of her first meeting of them. They were sitting on top of a taxi cab. <laughs> now, my sister-in-law and I have done that in Mexico. We weren't on the top. We were just on the door jam taking pictures of each other. But they, they're sitting on top of a taxi cab in New York City, and sh this is how Dorothy Parker described them. They did both look as though they had just stepped out of the sun. Their youth was striking. Everyone wanted to meet them. So they were the thing. This is when the first time that the diary pops back up. And for some reason, it was in... Scott's possession. He shows it to his buddy, and I am not making this name up. PV Parrot. PV Parrot. He shows it to his buddy, PV Parrot, <laughs> <laughs> who shows it to George Jean Nathan. And the men discuss that they want to publish it verbatim, as is, under the name The Diary of a Popular Girl. Um, I don't know why it wasn't done, but it was never done. That would be awesome to yes. read. I would love to have it. So anyway, Scott's, you know, got to pay the bills. So he starts working on another novel, The Beautiful and the Damned. Zelda finds out that she's pregnant. Now, interestingly, this was not her only pregnancy, but it was her only child. Apparently, there are references in some of Scott's letters to Zelda and her abortionist. Oh. Yeah. But she was not very motherly. The, the Scotty, what they called Scotty, was basically raised by nannies and domestics and help and whatnot. But so she was born on their only child, Scotty. Francis Scotty Fitzgerald was born on October 26, 1921 in Minnesota at the Scotts family home. And supposedly when Zelda was told that it was a girl, she said, and see if this sounds familiar. Oh, how splendid. I hope she's a fool. A beautiful little fool. Mm-hmm. Yeah verbatim yeah he just steals it from his wife and slaps it in daisy's mouth in the great gatsby but sadly what i think that that line says more so than anything else is that Ze and, it, and her life shows it zelda was just frustrated she was smart and she had something to offer the world and in the 1920s being a woman you really weren't given those opportunities no i 100 percent get that line like if she yeah. was just a beautiful little fool she could go through her life not caring about yep. having to look too deeply into anything and just doing what's expected of her exactly and poor little zelda can't do that so um <clears throat> she's just chucking along as i said mentioned not very domestic in 1922 zelda because she is the it person is approached by harper's harper brothers to contribute to their ongoing article, Favorite Recipes from Famous Women. And this, I bet she was thrilled about that. <laughs> it's hysterical. This is a little excerpt from her writing. She says, see if there is any bacon. 
And if there is, ask the cook which pan to fry it in. Then ask if there are any eggs. And if so, try to persuade the cook to poach two of them. It's better not to attempt toast as it burns very easily. (laughs) I love it. Just cracks me up. It's like so sarcastic. Yes, she gets sarcastic again later. I'm going to read another one. So Scott's working on The Beautiful and the Damned. And he basically just abandoned his wife when he's working on a novel. He just goes and isolates himself and just leaves her to you know fend for herself and she's not very domestic so she's not playing with the baby she's just bored so anyway the beautiful and the damned and as it's reaching its publication date the new york tribune asks zelda to review it they want just a cheeky little fun review like this is so great my husband's an amazing writer exactly so here's what she writes To begin with, everyone must buy this. I'm going to say this in Southern accent. I need not to. To begin with, everyone must buy this book for the following aesthetic reasons. First, because I know there is the cutest cloth of gold dress for only $300 in a store on 42nd Street. And also, if enough people buy it and there is a platinum ring with a complete circlet. And also, if loads of people buy it, my husband needs a new winter overcoat, although the one he has does well enough for the last three years. It also seems to me that on one page, I recognize a portion of an old diary of mine, which mysteriously disappeared shortly after my marriage, and also scraps of letters which, though considerably edited, sound to me vaguely familiar. In fact, Mr. Fitzgerald, I believe that is how he spells his name, seems to believe that plagiarism plagiarism begins at home. Ooh. She flat called him a plagiarist. They didn't publish that, did they? I don't know. It doesn't say if they had to have published it because it's in the article that I read. Oh my gosh. So it had to have gone into print somewhere. Are they dense? Pretty much. I mean, it gets it gets violent. They they accuse each other of plagiarism their entire marriage. That's crazy. It's crazy. They're spending, 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 but the money is not coming in as quickly as it once was. So they decide, get this. We're spending too much money. We're almost broke. Let's move to the French Riviera. (laughs) Sounds like a good idea, right? Sounds reasonable. (laughs) So they move to the French Riviera. Scott is working on writing The Great Gatsby, another one of his novels that he takes great inspiration from their lives. In fact, um, the scene where Gatsby first lays eyes on Daisy is exactly the way Scott met Zelda except instead of at a dance it's at a train station everything else is the same which I mean crazy that's just good writing though. it is I guess you write what you know you write from life but you don't steal your wife's diaries I mean that's not good writing (laughs) (laughs) that part no so they um while they're there he's writing his novel she's lonely she supposedly finds consolation in the arms of a French pilot named Josanne and she just is enamored with Josanne and she runs to home one day and demands a divorce. And Scott's reaction is to lock her in the house until she changes her mind. Also reasonable for 1920s. Also mm-hmm. reasonable for 1920s. But there's rumors that this never happened, that there was no Josanne. Later on, he tells a f- he forces her to recount the affair to a friend, and then he interrupts her and so says, "That's actually I. That actually makes sense. Like she could have been making that whole thing up to get his attention again. Yes, or he could have made it up to get people to you know pay attention to him and buy his book. Either or, either or, because later on he's he's hanging out with these fabulous people. I'll get to that. So, so the one of a." A biographer, biographer says that the, even though it was said to have been made up, I think you're probably more correct in that she may have made it up because the lost illusions and the uncertainty of Gatsby are directly related to Scott's loss of certainty and shattered illusions of Zelda. I mean, and then this is just one guy's opinion, too. So who's That's to just say? one guy's opinion, yeah. But so they're living in Europe, and they become involved in this lost, you know, the lost generation of expats mm-hmm. that was there at the time. Um, Gertrude Stein, John Dos Passos, I'm sure I pronounced that right, Gerald and Alice Tokus, Sarah Murphy, um, Robert McLennan, and Ernest Hemingway. Okay. Yeah. Supposedly, that story that I was telling earlier about when... Scott forces Zelda to tell in detail 
the details of her affair with Jozan. He is, she's telling this, he's forcing her to tell this to Ernest Hemingway. And in the middle of the thing, Scott breaks in and says, and the entire thing, the entire affair was off when Jozan committed suicide because he couldn't have Zelda. Oh my gosh. And you know they were drinking absinthe this whole time. Oh, big by time. The way. He's a freaking flaming drunk by now. Yeah. Like just losing it drunk all the time. But Hemingway and Zelda hated each other. Um, Zelda accuses Hemingway of having an affair with her husband. Scott accuses Zelda of being a lesbian. It just goes downhill fast. Marriage pretty much over. She's, there was supposedly an attempt at suicide, an overdose. They never speak of it publicly. They were, there was another time where they were supposed to be at a party and she sees Scott flirting. So she throws herself down a flight of marble stairs. Again, that goes along. I can totally see that if the other thing's true about her making up the affair because she's wanting his attention. His attention, yes. They basically go from the couple that everybody wants at the party to the couple that everybody goes, oh, they're here when they walk into the party. Yeah. It's going to be a long night. Oh, no. Yeah. Yes. We all know like at least a person like that. I don't (laughs) necessarily know a couple like that, but... At least a person. Yeah, I least. may have or may have not been that person at <laughs> some point in my early 20s. I mean, maybe we've all been that person and we just don't know. <laughs> right? So she is still searching for creative outlets. She still wants something to make her her. In um, 1929, she decides that she's going to take up ballet again. Oh, I was like, because she did ballet. So. Yes. Either at the... Um, Age of 29 or 27, I've heard both. I that seems hard, though, at that age. Yes, it was. Nearly impossible. But she throws herself in full bore, which will make sense. All of this will make sense in a little bit. Not make sense, but be explainable in a little bit. Um, she gets a coach. She practices over eight hours a day. Well, she has nothing else to do. She has nothing else to do except... Well, that sounds judgy. I was going to say, care for her daughter, but that sounds judgy. Don't want to be judgy. But so she throws herself into the ballet, and she works and works and works and works and works, and this is crazy. In September of 1929, she is actually invited to join the San Carlo Opera Ballet Company in Naples. Oh. Everything she's ever wanted, right? I I guess. She turns them down. Well, because... Yeah, what she re- this is just me psychoanalyzing, but she really wants Scott's attention. She really wants Scott's attention. And he's too busy. If she goes away, then that's not her aim. Right, right. So in 1930, um, Zelda is admitted to the sanitarium in France. Dr. Eugene Bueller and others. Bueller. Bueller. <laughs> and his first name is Eugene, too. That's just so unfortunate. Bueller. <laughs> That's terrible. We're so children of the 80s. I know. It's really bad. I've ref- we've referenced the 80s twice now in this. Pro- at least, probably. <laughs> okay, so she's eventually diagnosed with schizophrenia, but there's speculation, and given her behavior, that today she would have been diagnosed with bipolar. Oh, I can see that, just based on the miniseries. Yeah. And how they depicted her. Obviously, you can't really diagnose someone from a miniseries, but... <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I'm sure that's how Dr. Eugene Bueller did it. But I can understand that based on how they depicted her. Well, yes. And she frantically throws herself into... Like the eight hours a day of ballet. Yeah. And then turns it down when she gets offered it and throws herself down her stairs because her husband is flirting and makes up an affair or whatever. So she gets released in 1931 and the Fitzgeralds return to the U.S. Her father is dying. They go back to Montgomery. While dad is dying, Scott says, hey, y'all, go to Hollywood. I'm going to meet with some people about writing for movies. Bye. Okay, bye. Yeah. Like exactly the opposite of what his wife is trying to get him yeah. to do. She's trying so hard. So hard. So he takes off for Hollywood. Dad dies. And her health just goes way, way down again. So by February of 1932, she's again living in the psychiatric clinic. Later, and she is taken to the Phelps Clinic in Baltimore, Maryland. And oh, I've heard the Phelps Clinic is great. Yes. <laughs> well, they're part of the something. They're part of the John Hopkins Hospital, oh. so I'm sure they are great. Then they probably are great. Um, while there, she published, she frantically, again, the manic, 
writes a novel called Save Me the Walls. This novel, Save Me the Walls, gets published. She sends it to Scott's publisher, and he agrees to publish it. He publishes it. She only made $123. Still, though, I'd be happy to make $123. I know, right? I'd be really happy to make $123. But, so anyway, she sends this novel off. Scott goes fucking ballistic. Well, she got his attention. Well, yes, but guess why? Guess why he goes ballistic? Because she plagiarized him? No, she oh. wrote about their life. Uh, so her main character is this woman who um, is searching for a creative outlet, and she decides she wants to be an opera singer, so she studies opera fanatically. And she almost she gets invited to join this opera company, but she has to return to the U.S., which is in the South, to the U.S. state of somewhere in the South, to care for her dying father. Oh, no, that, there's no parallels there. <laughs> right? So she... she parallels this basically in her life it's almost autobiographical and scott gets mad because he wanted to use that material in his new book tender is the night how dare her how dare her use their life when he was going to use it that's no no how dare her use her life when he was going to use it also his probably would have been significantly different and the outside person never would have known to begin with. Exactly. And, and there have been people who have looked at the two novels. They've read Save Me the Walls and read Tender is the Night and they basically chronicle the same period of time, but they're vastly different. Someday when I have oodles of time on my hand, I'm like maybe when I go to Mexico in February. I was going to say maybe when I retire and the children are grown. I'll read some more F. Scott Fitzgerald because I've only read... The Great Gatsby and The Beautiful and the Damned. I've not read any. I'm obsessed with them and I've not read any. I'm horrible. So you read Tender is the Night. I'll read Save Me the Walls and we'll compare. Okay. Okay. I don't know when I'm going to do it. Bonus episode. <laughs> Remember that time when we were going to read that book, The United States of Sex, and have a book, little mini book club, yes. just you and I? Yes. And I think we read the first chapter and then yes. we never did more. I'm still on the first chapter. <laughs> I don't even know where my book is. I don't know where mine is either. <laughs> We suck. Hey, but we followed through with this. We did. We said we were going to do it. We've done it. Okay. That's a gold star for us. That's a We said we were going to do a podcast and we have a podcast. Woo! Like, what, what's your name? One person's listening. What's our listener's name? Sarah. 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 We love you. <laughs> so we have a listener. Not only do we have a podcast, we have a listener. That's not us. <laughs> That's not us. Okay. Zelda. Scott's mad. So it's it's her novel sells thirteen hundred and ninety two copies and she gets one hundred and twenty three dollars seventy three cents. I'd be happy with I said that. that. I'd I know, still be me happy too. with that. So she can't be a ballerina. She can't be a writer. She turns to painting and she starts painting while she's in the hospital. Her paintings are actually okay. Um, I found in my research a thing on PBS.org where there was a woman who came to the roadshow with a canvas on nast oil on canvas of nastrolariums um, that had been passed down from one of her doctors, one of Zelda's doctors in the sanitarium down through this woman's family. And she took it to the roadshow. Antiques Roadshow in July of 2011. And one of their people, Kathleen Harward, attributes uh, it to Zelda and and uh, praises it for ten dollars to $20,000. I wonder how that compares to the John Wayne Gacy paintings. I don't know. But in her day, she got no recognition for it, and now she's like this hugely, hugely famous person, and so the paintings that everybody said were crappy are now worth... It doesn't matter because she's a legend, so it doesn't matter how crappy they Zelda. were. Like, look at, again, look at John Wayne Gacy's stuff. His paintings are crappy, but... Yeah, people. Well, do you remember when we went to the, what's his name? Silver guy? The silver guy? The silver guy with the Campbell soup can. Oh, Andy Warhol? Andy Warhol. When we went to the Andy Warhol exhibit and they had the stuff of his early, early, early work. Yeah. It was not good. It was not good. Not good. So yeah. Anyway, she's in and out of hospitals. She's staying in the hospital. I've One of the things that I read, which was really cool, was... Um, letters from scott to her doctors asking if she could come and visit because they're the new york is doing a show of her paintings and he thinks she would like to see her paintings and could she come and visit to see the paintings could the daughter come and spend the night in the hospital with her because she'd like to see her daughter oh interesting just all of these really cool letters back and forth between them so in 
she's in the hospital. She's pretty much staying there. She's trying to write another novel, Caesar's Things or something like that. Um, Caesar's Things, that's what it was. That's not a good title. It's not a good title. It never got finished. I'll tell you what happened to it in a little while. We'll call it a working title for her sake. It's a working title for her sake. So they're going back and forth. This goes on for years and years and years. And he ends up in Hollywood. He's he's in Hollywood. He's obsessed with his failures as a novelist. He's writing for television. He has a torrid affair, a public, public affair with a um, Hollywood columnist, I think. I wrote it down. Can't find it. Anyway. Joan Rivers. Yes, Joan Rivers. <laughs> yes. No. He dies in at the age of 40. He has a sudden heart attack. And they never saw each other again. So for a year, the last year and a half of their lives, they never saw each other. Oh my gosh, crazy. His last, he like goes, he leaves her the hospital, he goes to Hollywood, and he never sees her again. That's crazy. Yeah, sad. Because they never divorced. They loved each other till the end. I mean, he's still writing these letters that he loves her and he, he wants to care for her to the doctors, but he's, he's it's almost like, my wife is sick. I need to put her here, but I need to carry on with my life. But he's a raging drunk, so he doesn't have much of a life either. I don't know. He, he has a heart attack, dies at age 40. She doesn't get to his funeral. She's not able to be released for her daughter's wedding, which is heartbreaking as well. She is working on this novel in the hospital, Caesar's Things, and... They've got her upstairs in the hospital. She's waiting to go to shock therapy treatment. This is like the saddest end for the most beautiful, like, not, well, for the, for what she was. She was the flapper. She was the it girl. She was the thing. People epitomized her, looked up to her. And here she is in 1948 in a hospital, locked in a room, locked in a room because she's awaiting to go to electroshock therapy. A fire breaks out in the kitchen. It goes up through the dumbwaiters and she is one of nine women to that are in the hospital, nine patients in the hospital to perish in the fire. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's even sadder than I thought it was going to be. It's sad. Yeah. It's just sad. She was just some old crazy lady locked in a room waiting to get her treatment and she burned up in a fire. That's terrible. And she had been Zelda Fitzgerald, like the like the the title of the miniseries, Z, the beginning of everything. She was the beginning of everything. Like if you look rock at, and roll. If you look at um, celebrity now, like you look at yeah. Kim Kardashian, where did that come from? Zelda, Zelda Fitzgerald. Everything. Yeah. The the rock and roll lifestyle, the the live fast, die hard, leave a pretty corpse lifestyle, all mm-hmm. of it came from them. Like they're what they like did. The quote, like she was the beginning and end of everything. Everything. Yeah. So her her daughter. Um, fought really hard. They were buried together, but not in the Catholic cemetery. Her daughter fought really hard and got their bodies moved in 1975 to the Catholic cemetery together. And there's a quote, the last line of the Great Gatsby is engraved on their stone. It says, so beat on, boats against the current, come back ceaselessly into the past. Oh, I know. That's beautiful. It is. And it's, it just makes me sad. I don't know. There's there's so much done on her and they're they're attributing but then again, we're attributing all of this to her. We're attributing the beginning and end of everything. We're attributing the women's live movement because she was an icon she was an oppressed wife and the seventies took her as this icon of women's rights. And we're just attributing yeah. All of this to her. And did she want that or did she just want her husband to pay attention to I her? I feel like after hearing this, because this they didn't really explain her psych call it or like her psyche very well in the miniseries Mm-mm. but after hearing and this, it ended with her finding out she was pregnant mm-hmm. i feel like that she all she really ever wanted was scott yeah i think so too which is like also very tragic even though she it is but i can relate yeah i can relate it's beautiful. I love husbands. It's the beautiful and the damned. It's the beautiful and the damned. Oh my God. Way to bring it full circle. Oh my gosh. Okay. Tell me a story that's happier than that. Well, oh, but it's about murder, right? It is about murder. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you about what some people consider the inspiration for the Great Gatsby. Like <gasps> at least the murder part of the Great Gatsby. So, so he stole that part too. He didn't steal it. Oh. It's not It's not that similar, but... I, mean, I love Scott Fitzgerald. I shouldn't be picking on him. Whose name, by the way, was Francis Scott Key Fitzgerald. I know. Francis Scott <laughs> Key. That's terrible. 
So I'm going to tell you about the Hall Mills murders. Okay. <gasps> Did you read about this? No, but I'm listening to an Unsolved Murders about this right now, and it's so freaking cool. Okay, I haven't heard an Unsolved Murders about that. You need to. It's so freaking cool. I was looking for a podcast about this because I like to listen to it uh -huh. afterward to get like little tidbits to add in. Uh-huh. And I only found one, and it was Thinking Sideways. So I listened to it this morning and they had some like little tidbits I could throw in, but I want to hear this other one. Okay. I'm super excited to hear this now. So this was supposedly the inspiration for the great Gatsby at F Scott Fitzgerald first conceived of Gatsby in 1922, uh -huh. even though he didn't write it till later. And 1922 was also coincidentally the year of the Halls Mills murders. Uh huh. So the murders were a horrific double homicide with all sorts of salacious details. Right up Scott's alley. Yeah. Uh, it was the talk of the town. It was even more than the talk of the town. Like it eventually became like the thing. It yeah. was in every tabloid. It was in every newspaper. You could not miss the Halls Mills murders. There's no way that the Fitzgeralds could have missed the story. Oh, yeah. Especially because they were very press hungry. They were always looking in the press. They uh -huh. were reading about what's going on because they wanted to be part of it, especially at that they time. They were looking for articles on themselves. Right. They but were. his family was... He, no, his wife's family was wealthy. Yes. And that whole thing was just salacious and scandalous. Well, what I liked about... One of the articles I read kind of described the Fitzgeralds as like the way they were portrayed and the way modern social media goes. They were kind of like the forerunners of that, but they did it all in like newspapers, right? And periodicals and that kind of thing. But the way they operated was very similar. It's like they were very concerned about their image. They wanted to be out there. Like they were doing all these things yeah. like... Like you were talking about, to get attention. Well, yes. And it even the research that I did even talked about how their marriage was falling apart. Throughout the 20s, their marriage was deteriorating. He was drinking more. She was getting more manic. And it was deteriorating. But they were very careful. It wasn't until the 30s when they were in, um, well, the late 20s, when they were in Paris, when she started pulling the pranks, like throwing herself down the stairs. So they were very careful to only cultivate this fast living fun yeah, like, image out in public you could have just imagined them like this instagram couple. yes in fact even in, in the letters that he wrote privately to the doctor and one of the reasons that he wanted her to be able to come and visit he said it's only 24 hours i don't think the old pattern of fights will have a chance to uh, to establish itself oh interesting yeah it was crazy so like i said this case was the talk of the town and later on an author, Sarah Churchill, wrote a book called Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. And this was about the Halls Mills murders. Wow, I want to read that. I know, I do too. I didn't have time to before this episode, wow. but I would love to read it. Uh, in her research, she even uncovered a newspaper clipping suggesting that the Fitzgeralds were aware of these murders. Oh, I'm sure. They had to have been. So, here we go. Okay. On Saturday, September 16th, 1922... Two bodies were discovered in near a lover's lane at the end of a trolley line in Franklin, New Jersey, near New Brunswick. Okay. The, and so New Brunswick was, if you remember, the Fitzgeralds located in New Jersey at one point on the Jersey Shore. Uh-huh. So that he could write and ignore Zelda. And ignore his wife? Yeah. Yeah. So this was in the same area. Interesting. Yeah. The deceased were Edward Hall, 41 years old, who was a rector or like pastor or priest, depending on what you call it, uh -huh. at St. John's Episcopal Church. Oh, Episcopal. She yeah. was, uh, Zelda was Episcopalian. And Eleanor Mills, 34. She was Edward's girlfriend and a member of the church choir. Edward's girlfriend? Yes. They were both married to other people. Of course they were. Mills was married to James Mills, an unemployed church sexton. Which, unemployed. Unemployed. But basically, like, I didn't really understand what a church sexton was, but basically they're custodians. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't that like the janitor? Yeah. They're the yeah. caretaker. And Hall was married to Frances Stevens Hall, who was an heiress to the Johnson & Johnson fortune. I didn't know it was the Johnson & Johnson fortune. The Johnson, the Johnson & Johnson, Johnson fortune. The Johnson The one that, okay, do you remember in the 80s? Again, we're referencing the yes, 80s. Yes, I do. <laughs> When there was that whole big controversy about that little symbol on the Johnson & Johnson products. I don't remember that. How do you not remember this? It was like a moon and a 
stars or something and there was this whole it was part of the satanic panic there was this whole big controversy about how it was it was some satanic horrible thing and blah 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 but i you know baby oil it's good baby oil it's great for tanning in for the tanning 80s. For tanning in the 80s. <laughs> yes, I did that a lot. I even had a Xena, the, remember the Xena, or was it Sharina or whatever, the girl who had the like leather bathing suit with the the ruffles on it? I do not remember okay, that. Okay, it was a movie in the 80s. Anyway, I had one. Mine was blue. And I would wear that in the backyard with my baby oil tanning lotion i had a body glove neon bathing suit in the 80s well you're better than me (laughs) (laughs) so basically this couple had been missing since thursday september 14th and upon discovery it had been determined that they had been dead for more than 24 hours by the time they were found the bodies were found by 15 year old pearl balmer and her 23 23-year-old boyfriend, Raymond Schneider. Okay, I was about to comment on the fact that this poor 15-year-old who has to find a body, and then you throw in 23-year-old boyfriend, and I just go, ew, skeevy. Uh-huh. They were also assumed to be in that location because it was a lover's lane for illicit activities. Yeah, think. Yeah. The bodies were... 23-year-old pervert on a 15-year-old. That's I know. gross. The bodies were I dis- say, and my husband's six years older than me. <laughs> but you weren't 15 when... No, we were not 15 when I met. The bodies were discovered posed on their backs, laying side by side with their feet pointing toward a crabapple tree. So they were... That's po- oddly specific. Yeah. They were neatly dressed and appeared to be sleeping. Mills had a hat placed over his face, and one of his calling cards was left at his feet. Oh, like, F you, minister... The a handful of love letters had been shredded to pieces and scattered between the couple. Gosh, I wonder why they were killed. It was discovered that Mills was shot three times in the head and her throat was slashed and voice box and tongue removed. That's weird. Yeah, and the knife wound on her neck was covered by a scarf that she had previously been wearing. Why would they take her voice box and what and whatever else that other? So there's, was? there's a lot of theories about that, and it's like, okay, she was in the choir. Does that matter? Like it could, it could, and then also the fact that she obviously got the brunt of it. So was she really the only target, or were they both? But someone was more angry at or her. Or do they blame her for yeah. the whole affair? Interesting. Yeah. So he was shot once in the head, and like I said, his hat was placed on his head as, and his glasses were as well. So they're almost trying to hide, to protect or hide him, or you know. Yeah, like, and that would, it's interesting because if you look at the photos, the crime photos, uh-huh. his hat is literally over his face. So like, it's he, like, like he's sleeping, covering his whole entire face. Yes, like if you were a man with a brimmed hat. And you lay down on the ground, you would put your hat over your face while you sleep. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, so at the time that the bodies were discovered, there was a squabble over jurisdiction because neither Middlesex nor Somerset County wanted the case. Nobody, typically they argue because they both want it. This one, no one wanted? Nobody wanted it. And Could it be the connection to the Johnson & Johnson money? I don't know if that was even it. I think it was just like, we don't want to get wrapped up in this. Like, it's too, too much. So while this whole jurisdictional dispute was taking place, the crime scene was pretty much ruined. There were, like, ordinary citizens flocking to the crime scene, they were taking souvenirs. They were selling them outside the area. Souvenirs! Yes. People, they, apparently people were taking some of his extra calling cards. <laughs> people were scraping bark off of the crabapple tree, and they were taking branches from the tree. Oh my goodness! And other people were scraping hey, us. Hey, honey, let's go down to Lover's Lane and get us a souvenir I from know. the murder. Let's go to the murder. <laughs> And this is the weirdest one to me. Well, other than I don't understand taking bark or branches off a tree. What What is that? But other people were scraping up soil from where the bodies had lain. Ew. Yeah. You could have like juices and shit I in know. there. So then the property owner was named Jane Gibson. She claimed to be a witness to the murder. She said that 
she was she had heard voices crying out in the night and she saddled up her her mule jenny to investigate go get my mule jenny so, so she owned Lover's Lane. She owned Lover's Lane. So I she owned Lover's Lane. She gets on Jenny and she goes to investigate. Later, so later, Jane Gibson, who was like pretty much the only identified quote unquote witness, uh-huh. became known in the public as Pig Woman because she was a pig farmer. <laughs> <laughs> they called her Pig Woman? They called her Pig Woman. That's horrible. And so apparently, Pig Woman slash Jane Gibson was pretty happy to talk to the press. The only problem is her story changed every time she told it, and she was constantly seeking attention from the Okay, press. so not only are the press just, like, horrible people and, and make up horrible names for people, even in the 1920s, but even in the 1920s, there are media whores that will say and do anything to get their name oh, out. Oh, heck yeah. Even if it is Pig Woman. Pig Woman Jane Gibson. <laughs> People have not changed. People, the more you know about how, like, these stories, especially the ones that happened, like, some time ago, the more you realize people are exactly the same. Exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And yet everybody cries, oh, we're so morally decrepit, blah, 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 blah. We have always been morally decrepit. Yes, people are people. People are people. people. (laughs) (laughs) Reference number what? Four or five? Another 80s reference. (laughs) Depeche Mode kids, look it up. <laughs> Do you remember at daughter number one's birthday party that time that we were all really drunk and sitting on the bench and playing 80s songs? That was only like last year. And our friend started crying because she was like so happy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. It was only last year. Was it really? Yes. Oh, it's been a long year. And that was Tears for Fears. No, that was not just last year. That was two years ago. Because this year we just went to Sacramento, remember? You're right. I made you drive husband's truck. Two years ago. (laughs) So back to Hall's Mills. Sorry. Sorry, Hall's Mills. Autopsies weren't performed on either body, and investigators also failed to note that the Mills corpse had been mutilated. There were rumors that... Mills is the woman? Mills is the woman. Okay. Oh, so they didn't notice the fact that her trachea and tongue had... Yeah. There were rumors that Hall's widow used her money and family contacts to squash the investigation. Well, yeah. She doesn't want people looking into the fact that her husband was screwing around. No. And in turn, she and her brothers were considered prime suspects, but nothing really became of that. Okay. At that time. The murder went unsolved and the case was eventually closed. So then, in 1926, four years later... Frances Hall and her brothers, Willie and Henry, were indicted and put on trial. So they dismissed the case and said that the family has nothing to do with it. And then four years later, they come back and arrest the family? Right. Because the case had been reopened because there was some new fingerprint evidence. and some Fingerprints. Of it, right. And there was no other forensic evidence whatsoever. And this had come to light because of some weird connection with Francis, Francis's cousin. <laughs> Fitzgerald. <laughs> Too many Francis's today. But no, Francis's cousin had somehow caused this to come to light. So there was new fingerprint evidence. They reopened the case. Uh, Francis and her brothers were indicted and put on trial. The trial was standing room only. And I bet. They heard testimony from 160 witnesses. Number one being Jane oh, Gibson. 160 witnesses. Yes. Weren't there no witnesses earlier? Right. So 160 witnesses, one being Jane Gibson, the pig woman, and she was actually rolled in on a hospital bed. I don't know what was wrong with her, but she was in a hospital bed. And they rolled <laughs> she her rolled into, into the trial yes. on a damn hospital bed. So as you can imagine, when we talk about trial of the century now, you instantly think of like OJ or yeah. whatever. But even, or even the Lindbergh kidnapping, like that trial was considered the trial of the century. This was before that. And this was the first trial of the century. I bet. That's insane. So it lasted for a month. And Frances Hall and her brothers were defended by, quote unquote, the first million dollar team of lawyers. They were million dollar team of yeah, lawyers. In 1926. Wow. Yeah. They were acquitted, and like I was saying, the trial was covered by more than 
70 publications, which was unheard of at that time. And it was one of the first cases that took on a complete media frenzy. And like I said, it is known that F. Scott Fitzgerald followed the trial closely. The murder still remains unsolved. And I think if we look at both of our stories, you can kind of see that, I mean, F. Scott, he didn't have Zelda's diaries to pick from, I guess, for The Great Gatsby, but he did have The Halls Mills Murders, and he did have his life. Interesting. So I'm literally trying to look up when Gatsby was actually published. That part I didn't look up. And I didn't either, and I, I mean... What year? My most famous thing. Stand by Googling. 1925. 1925. So it was before the trial, but it was after the murders. But after the murders, yeah. So that's so interesting. So he borrowed from his life, he borrowed from his wife's life, and he borrowed from the headlines. And I don't really have a problem with him borrowing from headlines or his life. It's just... No. Verbatim writing from his wife's diary? Different. Kind of, yeah. Story. So the murder was never solved. Never solved. And so here's a, this is also. I think some Johnson and Johnson money paid to have them. I think it's that's probably likely. What about her husband? Her husband was a custodian. Well, he couldn't still rip his wife's throat out. I, I don't know why he wasn't a suspect, but he wasn't a suspect. Interesting. But so. Oh, well, when I was doing research on this case, I found this article from, like, some New Jersey-specific magazine. And they were talking about how, like, I think it was kind of like, you know how people go to, like, murder mystery dinners? Yeah, I want to do that. I do, too. There was a thing, and it was, like, detectives, like, actual detectives that went to this, like, seminar where they discussed the Halls Mills murders. Uh And it was all in New Jersey. They went to some of the scenes as much as they still exist and looked uh-huh. at the evidence and like tried to see if there was anything that could shake loose from it, but nothing ever has. Yeah. So. I interesting. Don't know. Yeah. It's really interesting. So I well, have, you told me some stuff that they didn't talk about in unsolved murders. I'm going to have to listen to unsolved murders. Yeah. But I want to definitely thank Sarah for suggesting this. Cocktail yes. I'm very glad she one did. One of my favorite fun. stories. I mean, not that I didn't. And I, I, had looked into Zelda's life a little bit, but it, but really diving in was interesting, and I want to grow up and be her. Okay, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. I mean, I tried my best to tell the story that I had, but... No, it's perfect. It was awesome. I'm not an expert. I'm just a drunk. So, what if people like this and they want to talk to us? They can contact us. There's How? a number of ways. Okay, what? So you can email us at crimeandtimeotr at gmail.com. And we also would be happy to have your cocktail suggestions. Yes, please send us cocktail ideas. Um, you can talk to us on Facebook at Facebook at Crime and Time on the Rocks. We're on Instagram, too. We're at Crime and Time. And child number one handles our Instagram it's for adorable. the most part. It's so. adorable. Um, and Twitter, we're at Crime and Time. So tweet at us. Or, you know, whatever you do. Whatever you do. Thank you for listening.